say thank you for, for being here today. Hopefully this is something, and we'll talk more about this uh, toward the end of the day, but hopefully this is something that we can continue to do, uh, some kind of leadership uh, workshop here in the county in coming years that will be beneficial and helpful to us. And so I hope that uh, you enjoy the, uh, today and, and prosper from the things that, that we have in store for us today. Again, we're so thankful for each congregation in our county. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to work together, to have cooperation, to do the Lord's work. We want to continue to work on that, uh, that aspect of the work. We're not in competition with anyone. You know, that's, uh, our goal is to get everybody in this county, in this state, to heaven, or at least as many as we possibly can, get them to go to be with our Lord, spend eternity there. Our first speaker today will be Brother Matt Vega. I'll have more to say concerning him in just a second, but uh, we also have Brother Joe Nichols who will be here during the second session. That will begin at 10.30. Each session is designed to last about an hour uh, with 15 minutes or so in between for bathroom breaks or if you just want to talk, you know, or ask questions to the speakers or whatever to do that. Uh, after lunch, we will have uh, two or three of our guys who will have, from Midway, who will have a few things to say, and uh, we'll look forward to that. And then Matt will close us out today at the 1.30 uh, session. We'll be finished up here by 2.30 this afternoon. And so uh, we look forward to all of the things that we have in store. With Matt Vega, many of you have met him, you've heard him, I've been acquainted with him, I actually got acquainted with him through polishing the pulpit, and he has done a tremendous job in his speaking for us there at Polishing the Pulpit. But not just that, his life is filled with good work. Uh, he has a law degree, graduated from Yale University, and of course that is an accomplishment within itself. We're thankful to have faithful brethren of the Lord's Church who are educated in that way, to be able to help us to meet some of the, the uh, things that we are facing in our society, in our nation today. And we need good men who can help us understand those things and help us to prepare for them. But we're thankful that he uh, was able to acquire that education and not only to acquire that education, but to use it to help us in the Lord's church. Matt is married, his wife uh, Jennifer Webster Vega, uh, he and uh, she have three children, I believe it is. Uh, I think uh, maybe the youngest is now at, is he at uh, Freed Hardeman? Uh, so uh, he's, uh, he's experiencing uh, all of his children being through college or in college, and so uh, that's always a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, again, we're thankful that he is here. He has driven down this morning, or at least uh, come down for us, from Freed Hardeman. He previously served as uh, uh, dean of the law school at Faulkner University and now is working with Fried Hardeman University. And so rather than taking up a lot of his time, what we want to do today is turn the floor over to him. And so uh, we'll begin with a prayer. And following our prayer, uh, Brother Matt will speak with us. Would you bow with me? Holy and righteous Father in heaven, we're so thankful today for all that you do. We're thankful for the good night's rest that we had for the privilege of waking again today. And Father, today we're thankful that we have an opportunity to get together as thy people, to learn more about things that we can do that would 
help the kingdom and prepare to, uh, to defend the kingdom against things that, that confront it here. Father, we ask that you be with all of our speakers today and at this hour, especially Matt. We pray for him, that he can remember the things that he will say, that they will be beneficial to us, and that, Heavenly Father, we can use them. Continue to watch over each congregation in this county as we seek to stand behind the cross. Help us as we evangelize that we might be able to win souls. But Father, most of all, we pray that each one of us can be faithful to you. And one day we can come home to live with you forever. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. But Matt. Good morning. One of the challenges of uh, these kind of workshops is to try to balance the legal information with what I believe is important, and that is what God has to say on a matter. And so this morning, I want us to start uh, in a discussion about religious freedom uh, with uh, the Bible. So if you will, turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 16, and I just want to remind you of the fact is that the apostles... Paul in particular, uh, were not afraid to use their religious uh, freedom, their uh, legal rights to advance the gospel. And uh, in Acts chapter 16, what you'll find there is he was uh, facing some persecution by some slave owners who said these men, Jews as they are, advocate customs which are not lawful for us to accept or practice, uh, Romans as we are, Acts 16.21. And therefore, they then tried to get the local authorities to uh, punish Paul. But I, I want you to recognize that what Paul did in Acts 16, verse 37, was assert his legal rights. He said, they have beaten us publicly without a trial. Romans as we are. You see the contrast between the slave owners who assumed they were just Jews and therefore second-class citizens and did not have all the rights and privileges of a Roman citizen and were asserting as Roman citizens uh, that they be abused and, and beaten and mistreated because they were threatening their religion. And yet Paul was quick to exercise his rights as a Roman citizen and was not afraid to assert it. And so one of the things that I, I think is interesting about that is that it's not happening once, but several times in Scripture. Here's another one in Acts chapter 22, where the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. So interrogation with punishment. And that kind of uh, uh, punishment before they were found guilty of anything would have been a violation of a Roman citizen's rights to find out why they were shouting against him like this. And then Paul questioned that process in verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whip, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? You see it? I mean, you and I take for granted certain legal rights in this country, one of which is we cannot be punished until we've been proven guilty, innocent until proven guilty. That genesis of that right isn't the foundation of America, the founding of America. The, generation, the genesis of that right dates back to the Romans and even to the Greeks and even before that. 
And so the Romans had similar rights in place, and Paul was not afraid to exercise those rights. So I just want you to notice the response in both instances. In Acts chapter 16, verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Acts 22, verse 29, So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen that he had bound, and that he had bound him to be flogged without due process. My point is, is that in this country right now, we are facing probably... Um, more so than we ever have in this country, uh, anti-Christian discrimination. But that doesn't change the fact that you are American citizens. And with that, you have certain legal rights. And if you can be educated and be aware of those rights and use them in a godly way, the same way Paul did, they will be afraid. There are certain lines they can't cross. Now, we can't take those rights for granted. And those rights are being interpreted away by the highest court in the nation, the Supreme Court. And right now, we're at a critical juncture in our, in our American history where we have an opportunity as citizens to use our voting power to select someone who will be most likely to select the next, not just the replacement for Scalia, but for the next two or three judges that sit on that highest Supreme Court. If there's no other reason... Put aside our desires to, to, for a better economy and for more jobs or for uh, free education or to help in, in a hundred and other different ways our own status in life. And put in context what's at stake, in my opinion, right now in American history, and that is basic religious freedoms. And understand the opportunity that we have right now as a people to be able to influence that process. And I guarantee you I know where the Apostle Paul would stand. Because he understood how powerful his citizen rights were, his religious freedom rights were in the Roman day. And I don't think it's something he would want us to squander and waste away today. Now, that said, I, I do want us to um, put in context, uh, without you know, talking politics, the opportunity that's before us. And so that's, that's about all I'm going to say about it. But I think it's very sobering if we stop playing politics and start focusing on what matters most. Our first love. The love of the gospel and our great commission to go out and preach the gospel. And we ought to be doing everything we can to put that first in our lives and maximizing that opportunity. And that means we've got to put everything else second. Seek First, the kingdom of God. And if that's our focus when we go into a voting booth, if that's our focus when we uh, you know, take a position in politics, I, I, I believe that God will bless us. Now, <clears throat> that said, there's some disturbing things that have happened. I've, I've spoken on this topic in Walker County just recently. At, I guess, is Winfield in Walker County? Or is that across the line? That's across the line. Well, nearby. How many of y'all were able to attend that event? Several of you. And so I, I don't hope this, you won't find this, too, this first session repetitive. The second session is very different. Uh, and I have developed uh, some new policies. Um, 
I, I've had several churches that have really blessed me by allowing me to focus and work with them very closely, and so I've developed yet a new facility use policy and an application form and an agreement, and, I'm, and I've gotten their permission to uh, share that with you this afternoon, so you'll have the latest models uh, in that second session and some other, uh, uh, some basic legal practical advice. But this morning, I do want to focus on religious freedom, and, and it's because uh, even though we're going to cover some of the same ground we covered at Winfield, uh, it's because of a recent of a new development. You know what the First Amendment says? The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so there are two basic religion clauses in the U.S. Constitution. One is the Establishment Clause, and the other is the free exercise clause. And so the establishment clause has been misinterpreted to mean that, that uh, the founding fathers intended for, this, for there to be this hard line, this division between anything religious and anything uh, government. And that's not the case. They uh, had chaplains, they had devotionals, they had prayers every morning, every day in the uh, U.S. Congress in the beginning. And so uh, they had uh, Alexander Campbell uh, came and spoke uh, before Congress to try to help them break the, 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 uh, um, the, the disagreements that they were having before the Civil War. He tried to help them reconcile and come back together and preach for over two hours to them uh, about reconciliation in, in hopes to avoiding the uh, Civil War. Uh, so, so the Establishment Clause doesn't mean that you can't have a religious influence in our government. The Establishment Clause only meant that the government cannot make one particular religion the official religion and that people had to have the freedom to exercise their, their personal choice and choose to worship however they wanted. Now, that said, we're not going to focus on the Establishment Clause this morning. Instead, we're going to focus on the Free Exercise Clause and what it means today. Now, there is a, an old case involving Amish parents who wanted to teach their children, uh, once they became teenagers, a vocational skill rather than uh, staying in the public school system. And as you know, uh, the public schools have mandatory attendance until a certain age, and they, they're usually at 16 in most states and, and, uh, for, for many years. And the uh, Amish said, no, we want to pull them out when they are preteens, and we want to be responsible for their education because we think we know what is best and what they need to be learning is a trade and other skills to be farmers and that sort of thing. And so uh, they um, exercised their rights uh, under the Constitution uh, and claiming that they had, as part of their religious beliefs, responsibility as parents to be responsible for directly educating their children. And they chose, uh, and they delegated that to the public school for a few years, but at a certain point they insisted on training them themselves in their own way. Well, that's a religious exercise. That's a free, the free exercise of religion question. And the Supreme Court upheld the right of Amish parents to educate their teens in the way they wanted them educated and pull them out of the public school systems. And today, uh, many of us are beneficiaries of their fight because many of us homeschool our children uh, in our congregations today. And I believe that that's, a, uh, in many, many cases, a, a, a real blessing to those, to those families. Now, 
So what the court held, though, as a legal principle for why they allowed the Amish people to ignore the state law that they had to send their kids to public schools and to allow them to train their own children at home was, quote, because only those interests of the highest order and those not otherwise served can overbalance legitimate claims to the free exercise of religion. They understood the First Amendment free exercise of religion clause to be so important that only something of the highest order, some state interest of the highest order, would be enough to overcome that. And furthermore, you'd have to show that there was no other way to achieve that highest goal, that's that compelling state interest. There had to be no other way that that interest could be served. So that two-pronged test... That first you've got to show the government's interest in making you not exercise your religion according to your conscience has to be of the highest order and not otherwise served. That compelling interest test, strict scrutiny test, stood, uh, stood was basically how the First Amendment was interpreted for hundreds of years and stood as the law of the land until 1990. And in 1990, I believe we discussed this case in Winfield, there was um, uh, some Indians, some Native Americans, who were uh, using peyote in religious ceremonies. And the Supreme Court, instead of applying that same test that they applied to the Amish parents, said, well, it's a generally applicable law, and so what we're going to do is we're going to change the test. If the law applies to everybody, even though that's exactly what it was in Yoder too, a general law that everybody's kids had to go to public schools. But they said, well, we're going to make a distinction. We'll let Yoder be the test in, in unique situations. But if there's a generally applicable law, we're going to change the test. And we're going to say all they've got to do is show some rational government purpose. Not the highest order, not some really compelling reason, just anything rational will be enough to ignore your religious rights. Now, that switch in test resulted in what is today the modern rule. A believer, you and I, must prove that the law imposes a substantial burden. Not just a burden, but it has to be a substantial burden. And then the state, all they've got to do is show they've got a neutral, generally applicable law that's rational. And, and so you've got this high hurdle, they've got this low hurdle. Even if you meet your high hurdle, they can easily show they've got a rational reason for what they're doing. It's not crazy, in other words. If it's not crazy, then it's okay to, to, to violate your rights. If the law is not neutral or not generally applicable, then the old strict scrutiny test applies. And the government must prove this high order, this compelling interest, and that the law is, is narrowly tailored to serve that interest. But if it is neutral, if it is not crazy, then... They can do it, and the right is only good against the government, is the further limitation of the modern rule. Now, why do I uh, bring this to your attention? Because I don't want you to walk away thinking that your First Amendment rights are untouchable, that they're absolute, that in fact they've been whittled away by the Supreme Court in this, uh, this, this case, and that if we get the wrong judges in this court that's been consistently splitting 5-4 against religious freedom, we will see even more of our religious freedom erode very, very quickly. Very, very quickly. Now, here's what's happened last week. And this is new, new news. We, we, haven't had, we didn't have a chance to talk about this at Winfield. 
Last week, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Clarence Thomas was the head of the EEOC before he became a Supreme Court judge. The EEOC is, is responsible for enforcing the Title VII, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 65, as amended. And that law is what says that you cannot discriminate on the basis of age, sex, religion, you know, national origin, color. Uh, you, get the, you get it. Now, the EEOC can either authorize plaintiffs, individuals who feel they've been discriminated against or harassed or retaliated against for trying to exercise their rights. They can give them the right to sue. And they can get their own lawyer and they can file a lawsuit and collect up to $300,000 if they've been discriminated against. Or, and very rarely will they do this because they don't have the resources to do it, the EEOC will file its own lawsuit on their behalf. The government will become the lawyers for the plaintiffs. And guess what last week happened? The EEOC has filed two lawsuits on behalf of, of homosexual, uh, homosexuals and uh, lesbians. One case, it's, it's homosexual men. The other case is lesbians. Now, I just want to give you a sense of what that case is about because it's going to have wide wide ramifications if it's upheld all the way through to the Supreme Court. Right now, there is no federal law that expressly prohibits or protects sexual orientation. They protect, uh, they prevent, they prohibit discrimination against race or color or sex or national origin, but they do not prohibit discrimination against homosexuality, sexual orientation, transgenderism, lesbianism. That sort of thing. LGBT. Now, what the EEOC under Obama is saying is that the discrimination against sex provisions of Title VII are enough to be used to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Now, historically, the courts have said, no, that's not true and have not extended it that way. But the Obama administration is ignoring those because of this new age in which we're living right now, and they think they can convince the courts to not wait for Congress to pass the law, which has been struck down by Congress every year. Every year, Democrats in U.S. Congress have presented a bill to Congress to try to legalize sexual orientation, pro prohibit sexual orientation, uh, let's see, prohibit discrimination against people basis on the basis of sexual orientation. And every year, it's not been passed. But now, Obama's not going to wait for Congress to pass the law. He sent the EEOC to interpret Title VII as already prohibiting it, which is not true, but they're going to argue it. And if they can get a court to go along with it, then what you'll see is that they have, by de facto, uh, by, by just reinterpreting the law, um, added protection for sexual orientation. That means that every employer with 10 or more employees will not be allowed to discriminate against anybody engaging in a lifestyle um, that uh, they believe um, is not something that would be conducive to their work environment. And, and, and uh, you know, the question is, to what extent can churches uh, hold that line? Now, I just want you to get a sense, though, of this case because they're not going at it from a straight-up discrimination case. Remember, it's discrimination, harassment, or retaliation. This is an harassment case. And these are the hardest kind. 
And this is where you have to be as wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove in the way you handle people that are uh, people that you can't employ because of the sexual orientation or that uh, you um, do not want to be, you know, working with your young people because of their sexual orientation or whatever. Uh, and, and the point is this. You don't discriminate against people because of their sexual orientation. You hold everybody to the same standards that God has regarding sex, right? And so you don't, you, you, you deal with people that are uh, dealing, engaging in extramarital affairs or premarital sex or divorce and remarriage without scriptural grounds and uh, those engaging in homosexual relationships. The same. It's all sin, sexual sin. But what happens in our culture is that we don't know how to interact with people that are dealing with same-sex attraction. We don't understand it. And so what will happen is a lot of times ignorant people will engage in discussions with them and not know how to handle it and, and they'll say offensive things or they'll joke about it with them and offend them. And that could constitute harassment. So number one, churches do not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. You've got to understand that. You discriminate on the basis of what the Bible has to say about sex, period. And that affects heterosexual and homosexual people. But number two, you do not tolerate harassment in your churches, of your employees, of your staff, of any vendors that come on the premises, of any visitors on the premises, period. Harassment is not Christian. And there's no biblical reason why you should feel empowered to engage in that kind of behavior. Here's the facts. And I want you to imagine, can you see this happening in any context in your own churches? Last week, the EEOC filed its first sexual orientation discrimination lawsuit, one in Pittsburgh, the other in Baltimore. Here's the allegations in the Baltimore case. A night shift supervisor made numerous comments regarding a lesbian forklift operator's orientation and appearance, including, I want to turn you back into a woman. You would look good in a dress. And quoting biblical passages to say that a man should be with a woman. You see that fine line? Now, if he had been respectful, right? And if he had not been blowing kisses at her, that didn't say that, but that was part of the allegations, and saying, I want to turn you back into a woman, which is, I think, uh, a sexual comment, right? Uh, uh, or you'd look good in a dress. I don't know what that means. She's operating a forklift, right? Um, uh, but, you know, so he may be a good Christian man coming in on Sunday mornings and, 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 and leading the opening prayer, right? And he knows his Bible, and the preacher's done armed him with some good scriptures like 1 Corinthians 6 that say homosexuality is sin, or Romans 1 and 2. And so he's going to quote that Bible. If he quotes that Bible in the context of blowing kisses out of her and, and making sexually suggestive comments, even if he's joking, even if he's out of ignorance, do you see how he's undermining the work of the church? There's no way that we can defend this kind of action. No way. And so we have got to teach the congregations that we do not discriminate, we do not harass, and we do not retaliate. But at the same time, we still have to call sin a sin. It's going to be tough. Now that the federal law is being expanded, it's going to be very tough. Every employer with 10 or more people are going to be hard-pressed to try to curtail 
any evangelistic efforts, any proselytizing efforts by your members to talk to people about what the Bible has to say because they know the Bible has to say some things that are offensive to people that are same-sex attracted. And so they're going to be very weary of allowing anybody to be studying their Bibles in break rooms and talking to co-workers about the Bible because they know how easy it will be to trip the line just like this case. This case is a loser. That dude is guilty and that employer will pay. There's, no, there's a reason why the EEOC picked this one. They know they're going to win this one. And what I'm telling you is that that kind of situation is going to be very easy to cross that line if we are not very careful in our language. If we do not heed what Ephesians has to say about coarse jesting and about uh, profane language. It's those days of being able just to say what you want uh, and, and not be held accountable are over. And now the question is whether or not we're going to have to back up light years in our religious freedom because we don't know how to exercise it in a way that isn't offensive. Does that make sense? It's tough. This case is telling me how it's coming to our front door and to every one of our workplaces uh, almost immediately. I thought we had a couple of years because I thought it would take a little change in the Congress. But uh, the EOC is circumventing Congress now. So it's going to be here within 18 months. Yes, sir. Well, the, the church is a workplace. And so then the question is, how big a church is it? So as long as you don't have 10 or more employees, then hopefully you won't be subject to this. Okay? But if you have 10 or more, you will be subject to Title VII. And, and so that's one thing. Most of our churches are small enough, we don't have to worry about it, and we're autonomous. That's good. So we don't have a world headquarters with 1,000 employees, so that's good. But the point is this is a workplace, and the states could pass a law that make it e that apply it to even smaller employers. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the question. Is is to what extent do you have the freedom as a, during a break room when you're not on the clock or after work um, inviting a, inviting a coworker to church? or asking them if they'd like to have a Bible study, or to read your Bible, just sit there and read your Bible. And the First Amendment has upheld that to date, has upheld that right to do that. On your own time, reading the Bible and having discussions about whatever uh, you, you, know, you want to on your own time. You have discussions about politics and religion all the time over the, over the water cooler, right? And so now, if you're a supervisor and they are an employee, then the employers are going to be more circumspect in what they want you to talk about, right? But even on your own time, they are, you know, usually not getting to your business. But what I'm saying is that now, because of this conflict between the same-sex rights, same-sex uh, orientation rights, and uh, religious rights, uh, this conflict is going to become more and more common. And so more and more employers are going to crack down on what employees can be talking about during the break room and during lunch hours and during all, when they're off the clock, especially if they're supervisors. And it's going to become more and more difficult for us to uh, be able to influence the world uh, when we spend 10, 12 hours a day working every day. All right. Good question, though. But I'm going to get to whether or not this could apply to religious in, in, a, in a church employer situation in just a second. All right. 
Here's some more facts. In March in 2014, the employee complained to her supervisor, but no action was taken. After the manager blew a kiss and made a suggestive gesture to her in April, so after she's complained, he's still antagonizing her. She complained again to the supervisor who said he would speak to him. What's the problem? Now you don't just have harassment, you've got potentially retaliation. And it's all because of a failure to address a complaint. If someone brings a complaint to your attention as a church leader, you have got to redress, address that immediately. That means 24 hours immediately, okay? Not two weeks immediately. And you have got to take appropriate action to make sure it doesn't happen again if, it, if there was something to it, okay? If you don't, then even if they weren't guilty of doing anything that rose to the level of unlawful discrimination or harassment, they'll automatically win the retaliation case, and it's the same $300,000, now, it gets worse. The day after she left work early to avoid further harassment, now that's what she's saying, she may be a very you know, lazy employee and may be a real reason, you know, maybe that she, but she's claiming, and timing allows her to claim it, that after she complained and he continued to harass and she complained again and they didn't do anything except say they'd talk to him, she had to take matters in her own self and she left work early. Uh, the employee was called in, and she was asked to resign, according to the complaint. She refused. Later in the day, she was called back in with the HR people present, and she was given a letter stating she had agreed to resign. When she refused to sign it, they fired her and called the police to escort her out. That's that case. I, I think you can see that that case is not something that you would want to be a party to. But I hope you can also see how easy it is to mix the Bible with a few bad jokes and create that kind of lawsuit. Does that make sense? We have got to be more circumspect in our language. We've got to control the tongue. If we're going to take a stand on these highly volatile topics like homosexuality, we have got to be in control of what we said and what is not said. Now, um, <clears throat> when it comes to churches, there are two exceptions under the law that we're going to keep fighting for. These exceptions are not written into the statute, so you're not guaranteed. Number one, Title VII doesn't apply unless you've got over ten employees. So that's good, because most of us don't have that many employees. But number two, if you do have that many, or if that threshold was dropped and it could be lowered at any time, you have a second line of defense, and that's called the religious organization exemption which says that you have the right to show religious preference to people who are affiliated or members of the Church of Christ, and you don't have to, and you can hire them over an applicant that's a Jew or a Protestant or a Catholic or something like that. Um, now, it does not allow you to discriminate on the basis of these other protected characteristics, though. So when you hire uh, that janitor, when you hire that guy to cut your lawn, when you hire uh, staff, um, to, to maintain the building when you hire a church secretary even, you're not going to be allowed to discriminate or harass on the basis of race, color, national origin, or sex. And remember how the EEOC is interpreting sex now. You see it? You see how it's going to happen? They're going to say your church secretary doesn't meet the ministerial exemption, which we're going to talk about in a second, and they're going to say that this exception only applies to you choosing her to be a member of the church, preferring a member of the church. But if she's a member of the church who's a lesbian, you can't f not hire her. 
because she's a lesbian. Because that would be discrimination on the basis of sex. And that is not protected. No more than it would be if she's a member of the church and was black and you didn't want to hire her because she was black. That's not protected. You see it? That's the danger of the EEOC cases that are pending and how it could apply to, them, to uh, churches if the church was t- big enough to, to, to qualify under Title VII. Now, states uh, will follow this suit. They usually track. The state law in Alabama has the same words as Title VII, and the courts interpret the t- state law in the same way the federal law is interpreted, usually. And so once the federal law is expanded to, say, sex includes sexual orientation, then automatically the state laws will as well. In the state of Alabama, we do not have our own uh, anti-discrimination law. We have the, our retaliation law. And so what we've got to do is be wary of discriminating, harassing, or retaliating on the basis, uh, on, uh, against people on the basis of their protected characteristics. Now, so, this is your second line of defense, to say, well, we only hire members of the church. Well, that's only going to help you if the members of the church are, church, are subject to church discipline and are, in fact, faithful members of the church. If you allow every Tom, Dick, and Harry to be a member in Walker County, and then when they apply for the church secretary positions in town, and there are all kinds of walks of life, and, and engaging in all kinds of habitual sin, then you're going to have your hands, uh, hands full if you do not hire them on the basis of their lifestyle choices. Does that make sense? Instead of on the basis of their status as a member of the church. You are protected in preferring their status as a member of the church. You're not protected in making judgments about their lifestyle. So we need to practice church discipline in the church and keep it pure in order to be able to prefer members of the church, and that actually means something. Now, um, the second perception is the uh, ministerial exception. And the ministerial exception goes back to a case called Hosanna Tabor, which allowed the firing of a teacher with narcolepsy, narcolepsy from a religious school where her religious duties consumed only 45 minutes of the day and otherwise taught secular subjects. But the court held that because they um, called her a uh, minister, her title, and that that's what it meant to that organization, and that they perform, and she performed some ministerial-related duties that she was a minister for purposes of the lawsuit. Now, I don't know how far we can stretch the ministerial exception. It obviously will cover our ministers, our youth ministers. Our elders, arguably, would be covered, uh, if they were, especially if they were paid and subject to Title VII. But um, church secretaries may not qualify. They won't have the right title and they won't be engaging in, in the normal activities of a minister, per se. So, um, in my opinion, that exception is going to be limited to our ministers right now, if it doesn't go away altogether when courts um, decide not to show favoritism to churches any longer. Now, so, three basic lines of defense. The size of your church, uh, employment staff, the uh, religious exception, for hiring preference, preferring members of the church when you hire them, and the ministerial exception, which allows you to hire and fire ministers at will, doesn't matter the reason, because they're ministers. Okay? That's really the only real rights that you have. Matthew chapter 12 says this, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Words matter. What we say does matter. And the world is judging you by your words. 
and so will the Lord. Ephesians 5 puts it this way, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. That's what that suit night supervisor was doing with that forklift operator, in my opinion. Which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, um, that's where we get to where we are as far as legally in this country right now. The EEOC is trying to broaden the protection for sexual orientation, and that's going to increase the opportunity for conflict with Christians in the workplace or even churches who are employers that are big enough to be subject to Title VII. Um, and so I go back to the Obergefell decision decided last June, which recognized the right of homosexuals to get married. And the court said that we have the right to advocate with the utmost, severe, utmost sincere conviction that by divine precepts, same-sex marriage should not be condoned. It also said that we have the right to teach the principles that we believe are so fulfilling and so central to our lives and faith and to our deep aspirations to continue the family structure as we've long revered. But what they do not say is that we have the right to act on those beliefs. We can talk about them, we can teach them, but we can't act on them. Chief Justice Roberts, in his dissent in that case last June, said this, the majority graciously suggests that religious believers may continue to advocate and teach their views of marriage, but the First Amendment guarantees the freedom to exercise religion. That's where we started. Ominously, that is not a word the majority uses. If we do not have a stronger pro-religious freedom Supreme Court in the next couple of years, when all of these clash cases come, we're going to lose. We're going to be shut up in the workplace. We're going to be very restricted in our hiring practices in the church. And so it's coming because this is their philosophy. And this is a professor of law, I won't give you her name, who is one of the leading writers in this area. And this is a summary of basically how she views your religious freedom. You have the right to believe in your heart. That's pretty absolute. Why? Because she says it doesn't harm anybody. And the right to speak, advocate and teach, that should be highly protected, in her opinion, because it's unlikely to harm anybody. Unlikely. You can say enough hateful words for it to become hate speech, and you can be found liable. And then her third position is the right to religious conduct. No. The law can freely govern that. Why? Because it's much more likely to harm. So they're going to govern everything you do in the name of religion. Just not what you say. Unless it's really hateful. Well, at least not what you think in your mind. So that's safe. That's what freedom of religion is now. It's thoughts. You see the problem? This kind of approach to your First Amendment rights are going to make it very difficult for you, like Paul, to exercise your rights and be able to preach the gospel freely. Now, uh, Chief Justice Roberts thinks this conflict is inevitable. Hard questions arise when people of faith exercise religion in ways that may seem to conflict with a new right to same-sex marriage. Here's a few examples of the kinds of things that, that he points out are going to happen. There's going to be a conflict between a religious college that provides married student housing. 
when they don't want to provide that to, op- to uh, same-sex couples. They only want to provide it to opposite-sex couples. There's a conflict for religious d- adoption agencies that declines to place children with same-sex married couples. Uh, both of these have already come to pass. Fried Hardeman just sold their uh, nursing home out of fear of that first one. The second one was an adoption agency uh, in Baltimore and Boston, a Catholic adoption agency, that shut its doors because they were forcing them to place children with same-sex married couples, and they said that was against their religion. And they said, well, then you have to shut your doors. And then the third one is the tax-exempt status of some religious institutions that oppose same-sex marriage. It is very probable that uh, the tax exemption that you benefit from in the way your members are able to give will go away if, uh, the next, uh, if, if depending on who the next president it is. Um, and because they're, uh, one of the parties are very, advoca- very strong advocates of taking that charitable deduction away. And you basically take it away from your members so that they can't get a tax write-off for giving to a church, a religious entity. And then that will affect how much they can afford to give to the church. And uh, it's also threatening uh, Christian colleges who depend on federal financial loans. The Department of Education could uh, uh, pass a regulation tomorrow that says no students can use federal loans, and they're the only student loans. I thought that was interesting in a recent debate. I think it was Hillary said, you know, those greedy bankers that give student loans at high rates. And I'm like, wait a minute, the only student loans now are, are, are the, the federal government's controlling all the student loans now. So if it's high, it's because the federal government's got it high. But, but the point is that if you, as the Department of Education say, you cannot use a federal loan at a religious school that discriminates on the basis of sexual orientation, then that school would have a hard time uh, getting the funds necessary for their students to be able to afford to go to college. Um, Free Hardeman is already anticipating that, and the board has several members uh, that are bankers, uh, large banks like Bank of America, and they're looking at trying to provide a, a private loan alternative if that was to happen, but it's a real risk. Uh, and this, these risks were identified by the Supreme Court, Justice, Justice Roberts. So here's some unanswered questions. Whether a preacher must perform a same-sex wedding ceremony because he's wearing two hats. Uh, he's both a, a preacher and he is an agent of the state. That's why he says in a wedding ceremony, uh, by the power vested in me by the state of Alabama. Whether the church must make its facilities available for same-sex weddings. Whether the church must hire an LGBT employee. Whether the church must provide same-sex spousal benefits to employees. Those are all um, open questions that the Supreme Court has not clearly said you have the religious freedom to refuse to do those things. And until they do, you're at risk. And we have got to be very circumspect in the way we do things until then. Now, it's high stakes because uh, apart from the law called RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, if you're depending on just the First Amendment, you're losing in every case nationwide. We'll get to RIFRA in a second. But in those states that do not have RIFRA, and all they have is the First Amendment, Every conscientious objector, every Christian baker and photographer and wedding venue owner who said, look, I I conscientiously can't help celebrate and facilitate and assist two people coming together of the same sex. I can't do it. They've lost. Every time. And they've had to pay fines. And that... That reality is, is that, that it's very important that we understand the conflict and how it's come to our door. Now, so 
You've got several responses. You can engage in civil disobedience, like the Rowan County clerk did, Kim Davis. Um, that was short-lived because the Kentucky uh, legislature accommodated her by passing a law to allow uh, her, somebody underneath her to start signing uh, those same-sex marriage certificates. The constitutional amendment process, the problem is that the number of Americans who believe that same-sex marriage is okay and favor it has grown dramatically to now it's a, a supermajority, 57%. And so you're not going to be able to amend the Constitution to change that. You could elect a president who can appoint Supreme Court justices that support traditional marriage and religious freedom. I'm a big advocate of that, as I'm not making any bones about that. And the last option is you can assert your rights, as Paul did, under RIFRA. And that's what I want to focus on here just for a few minutes. Your rights under a statute, not the First Amendment, but under a statute that reverses the Supreme Court decision in that peyote case and goes back to what the First Amendment used to mean. That's all it does. It differs a little bit from state to state, but that's largely all it does. Why is that your best defense? Well, as I told you in the peyote case, they changed the test from the strict scrutiny test to this, as long as it's rational and generally applies to everybody, they can do whatever they want to your religious rights. And the Supreme Court held that the federal RIFRA law, which has been passed, um, will only apply to federal laws. It won't govern state laws that infringe your religious freedom. So every state has to pass their own. And to date, uh, 22, 23 states have enacted RIFRA, a state version of RIFRA. And the Supreme Court has used RIFRA to uphold Hobby Lobby's right to refuse, under Obamacare, to have to pay for, for its employees to, to uh, have access to abortion-facient drugs, drugs that would induce abortions. And it was not the First Amendment that Hobby Lobby won under. It was RIFRA. So federal RIFRA will help you fight against federal laws, and your state referral, which Alabama has a state referral law, it's been on the books for a long time, since the 1990s, it's actually not a statute, it's, it's been amended into the Alabama state constitution. That will protect you against state and local laws that infringe upon your religious freedom. Okay? Now, here's how it works. You have to have a sincerely held belief that is substantially burdened. In Tennessee, they wrote the statute just to say burden. They struck the word substantially. So they actually made the law better than the old First, first Amendment law. Okay, Because now all you've got to show is any burden to your religious freedoms in Tennessee and you can invoke RIFRA. But in most states, like Alabama, you've got to show it's substantially burden to burdening your, your religious freedom. And that's fine. It, you know, we can endure some persecution, but once it's a substantial burden, if they pass a general law that says nobody can meet on the first day of every week, that would be a substantial burden, in my opinion, on our, on our religious freedom. We wouldn't be able to worship our Lord on the first day of the week like we're supposed to, right? Well, that would meet that. And so then the burden shifts to the state under RIFRA, and they've got to do the old Amish Yoder test, right? Uh, they've got to show a compelling government interest of the highest order, like major genocide, you know, national security, something big. And then they got to show that there was no other way to serve that highest order, that, they, that they've used the least restrictive means for achieving their compelling interest. And if they can make an exception for religious folks and it not really affect their, their government interest, they have to do that. Okay? So that's how RIFRA works. So let me give you a test. Ready? 
These are real cases. This first one's in Florida. Arnold Abbott, 90-year-old Florida man, was arrested and cited three times for feeding the homeless in violation of the city ordinances. How many of y'all have uh, done some benevolence work? Helping out uh, with homeless shelters and feeding the poor and families that are in trouble? Good. All right, well, that's all he was doing. He believes that was part of his uh, religious duty to help those that can't help themselves with physical needs. And so he was feeding the homeless, and it was violating the city ordinance that forbid any social services in high tourist areas. So all of Orlando, all of Miami, you know, there's major areas in Florida that you are not allowed to set up these soup kitchens and be helping out the homeless. Because that would distract the tourists and make them think, oh, this place has got a bunch of homeless people lined up, you know. And so here's the case. Did, and so apply, and so he asserts his RIFRA rights. You, you play lawyer for a second. Did Mr. Abbott have a sincerely, sincere religious belief that was being substantially burdened by the government? Answer is yes. Benevolence is part of our religion. It's not just worshiping on the first day of the week. It's more than that, right? We have the right to teach and preach and worship and do benevolence and have fellowship. We have a broad religious set of religious beliefs. Did the government have a compelling interest in burdening his ministry? The answer, according to the, to the, to the lower court there, the federal court there, was yes. That kind of surprised me. What, what compelling, really important interest did they have? This wasn't no genocide. This was no national security. Well, in, in, um, in Florida, tourism is a big deal. I get that, I guess. I mean, Disney World and that sort of thing, they really depend on tourism. Uh, you know, they sell oranges and tourism. What else they got down there, right? And so there's this uh, decision by a court that that's a compelling interest. That scares me a little bit. That means that they're going to be broadening the excuses they can come up with to substantially burden your religion. I think that should have been a higher threshold than just tourism. But money talks. And if you impact them financially, just like Paul uh, uh, impacted uh, the Ephesians, uh, you know, and their, their, their making of those little silver Dianas, Artemises, right? That people will fight you, okay? So just, just understand that, that that's not a good development. Then the third question was, was the government using the least restrictive means to serve its compelling interest? And here's where we won. Won one. Lower federal court said no, because they could have allowed him to Feed the homeless in some alternative locations. If you can't do it in this high tourist block, why not say go move to the next block instead of just finding him and saying he can't do it? Find him a place that he can do it in some back alley that'll be out of sight for the tourists. They could have done some kind of workaround to accommodate him, and they uh, didn't. And therefore, the court held that because Florida has a RIFRA, the courts will eventually rule that Mr. Abbott's religious freedom rights were violated and he is free to continue helping the needy in Florida. Good outcome. But you see that analysis. And so when you try to make a decision to, to go against any kind of uh, general law in state, local, or federal, this is how the courts are going to analyze it. Here's a second case. A group of 40 churches sued Chicago under Illinois' RIFRA uh, claiming the zoning laws oh, did not allow you to build a church in certain areas of town where they really thought they needed one. They start the analysis. Did the church have a sincere religious belief that was being burdened by the government? And they said no. You have no sincere religious right 
It's not even sincere belief to want to plant a church in downtown Chicago anymore. Has anybody been to Chicago lately? Do you realize how hard it is to find a church to worship when I was working there for a summer? I had to drive all the way out to the suburbs, 45 minutes. Now, I believe it would have been a good work, and sincerely, if I was living in Chicago and working in the Gold Coast like I was, I would sincerely be wanting to establish a church there. And the courts up there, federal courts, said, that's not even sincere religious belief to even want that. Now, how am I going to fight against that? We have to do a better job of preaching and teaching and proclaiming that part of our religious belief is, it includes evangelism and church planning, right? And, and uh, I think that they must have done such a bad job of it that people, the court assumed it's not a big deal. So, outcome was that the churches had failed to show that the government had overly burdened them. Now, so here's some steps that I recommend that you take. Ahead of time, you need to start proving up your sincerely held religious beliefs, whatever they are. Whatever you think that the government might attack or pass laws that would undermine, you need to be teaching and preaching that openly in your classrooms and from the pulpit. And you need to be documenting those beliefs in one or two places. If you're incorporated, they need to be in your bylaws. And if you're not incorporated, you need to, or even if you are, you want to go ahead and just pass some kind of policy uh, controlling the use of your building that you can stake, stake, put a stake in the ground and say, we believe, because our sincerely held religious beliefs uh, cause us, compel us to say that we cannot be a party to joining people in, in same-sex relationships. And so we cannot allow our property to be used for that purpose either. And so you've got to say that ahead of time to meet the very first rule of RIFRA, that you had a sincerely held religious belief that was substantially burdened. Does that make sense? That's the reason why all the churches have been talking about drafting up facility use policies and changing their bylaws. It's so that they will have some kind of defense, like Paul did, to say, whoa, what are you doing? You're violating our religious rights. Now, Step two is you got to explain, be ready to explain how your, your rights are being substantially burdened. You've got to go beyond saying we believe homosexuality is wrong. You've got to be teaching of these scriptures, and here's some scriptures I've given you, uh, that it's wrong to help people engage in sexual sin, to facilitate it, to assist it, to celebrate it. And I'm not sure, that's a nuance, but for the courts, that's the kind of nuance that they'll say, hey, ain't nobody causing you to engage in lesbianism. You've got to say, no, no, you don't understand. What's being substantially burdened is our belief that it's wrong for us to condone sin, to participate and facilitate that kind of sin, to call sin not sin, right? To call it marriage. Now, that, that basic Teaching is one that I think is a nuance, but it's one that we're not really clearly teaching. We've got a real strong sense of individual autonomy. And, you know, everybody works out their own salvation with fear and trembling, and who are we to judge attitude. And that's from the world. That's not from Scripture. The Scripture says you are shepherds, and you're supposed to be watching after your sheep, and you've got to be able to teach them. And you're the pillar as the church of truth. So you've got to be able to explain, here's the truth on the matter. And so if you look at those scriptures, I think you'll find uh, that they are going beyond saying don't engage in the sin. They are saying don't yoke yourself, don't participate, and don't fellowship with those that are engaging in that kind of sin. Now, all right, um, 
for me, I think it's a compromise uh, if you were to respond to this situation by saying, well, it's wrong, but we're going to, you know, we don't want to uh, um, hurt their feelings. I'm not sure how these churches are, to be honest with you, are justifying it. But there are churches that have developed this attitude of, we love them anyway, and so we're going to uh, put more arms around them. Hopefully we'll influence them. Uh, but, but for the time being, if they want to get married, we'll marry them. And uh, then we'll try to influence them for good. I have no understanding how that works. But that's, a, that's one possible way. If your church goes down that path, then you will have no riffraff rights. To, to, you have to accommodate that fully. Um, or you can get out of marriage altogether. Uh, the problem is I think marriage is something that God created. And so I don't recommend that the churches stop engaging in marriages uh, because it's a great evangelistic tool. I think if you've got a young couple that's eventually going to have children and you can say, yeah, we'll marry you, but I want to engage in some premarital counseling with you first, right? You can have an opportunity to really influence that family, that, that future family, uh, in a powerful way uh, by the virtue of the fact that your minister does conduct marriages and that your eldership supports that. Um, so I don't think we get out of the marriage business. Um, I think we just have to assert our rights to marry only those that we believe God joins together. And the tr- trick to that, in my opinion, is to treat this just like we have divorce and remarriage. And the churches that have compromised on that issue since the 70s are going to be hard-pressed not to compromise on the same-sex marriage issue. Because it's the same thing. Neither marriage is recognized by God. And if you do one, under whatever excuse or rationale, then why are you not doing the other, except for the fact that you're a bigot and a homophobe? And that's where you'll lose because that's not protected under the First Amendment or under RIFRA. And so you've got to say, no, we're doing this because of our religion. Well, the religion condemns both. A second marriage without scriptural grounds for the first divorce is condemned just as much as two men doing what is unnatural and trying to call it a marriage. Now, in fact, it's actually condemned more often in Scripture. Now, so... What did we do in the, same, in the divorce and remarriage context? Faithful churches, they refused to perform those weddings. They denounced it from the pulpit. They taught against it. They fired and disciplined members, fired preachers if they violated it. We were consistent. Got to do the same thing with same-sex marriage. And then when you get sued, you say, look, we don't discriminate against people because they're homosexual. Right? We only uphold what God upholds, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual relationships. And we treated divorce and remarriage situations the same way we did this, and this is no difference. And you'll be on good ground because you were consistent in your faithfulness to God. If you're inconsistent and waffled on that first one, come see me. If you realize the error of your ways, we're going to have to do a lot of work to uh, unring that bell at your church. Um, because legally, you've set yourself up for a lawsuit on the same-sex marriage issue, in my opinion. Step three. Demand, like Paul did, exercise your rights and, and play, the, play the, the, the religious freedom card. Unless the state can show it has a compelling interest, and I'm going to fight terrorism, anything short of genocide, as a compelling interest, okay? Um, and unless they can show that they you know, came up with the most uh, least restrictive means for accomplishing their goal, then we believe that we have the right to exercise our religion and refuse to uh, marry a same-sex couple. 
I mean, think about it just in simple terms. Um, a lesbian couple comes in this door right now and says, Mark, uh, will you marry us? Well, no, right? Where is Mark? He disappeared. There he is back there. No, right? If that's the answer, what's the defense? What's their compelling interest? Well, we want to generally prohibit discrimination against people that are uh, based on their sexual orientation. That's a, let's say that's a pretty weak compelling interest, but let's assume that's it. Fine. Does it really hurt national policy, state policy? Uh, does it hurt that to accommodate a few religious people like Marx's sincerely held religious beliefs that they not be a party to joining them? So you want to uphold the right for everybody to get married to whoever they want, including same-sex couples. That's your compelling state interest. But there are plenty of places they can get married at here in town, right? Plenty. They can go to the courthouse and get married. There's nothing that says they have to get married here in order to uphold their right to marry whomever they want. And so that's not the least restrictive means to force us to marry them here. They have to accommodate our beliefs and do a more restrictive, least restrictive means would be make sure there's some place in Alabama they can get married. Now, that's going to be a whole other can of worms if the state of Alabama tries to fight against same-sex same -sex marriage licenses. How do you accommodate that in the least restrictive means if it's a federal policy you're trying to uphold? All right. Now, there's two problems with RIFRA, just to remind you. There's differences between the different state RIFRA laws. As I gave you an example, Tennessee says just burden the religion and you can file the claim. Alabama says you've got to substantially burden the religion, just like the First Amendment used to say. Uh, there's the Alabama uh, constitutional amendment from 1999, and it basically says what we've covered. Then the second problem is that it can be repealed any time because it's not the First Amendment. In Alabama, it's a constitutional state amendment, state constitutional amendment, so it's a little harder to repeal. We've got hundreds and hundreds of amendments uh, in our Constitution, but um, that's, uh, that is a general rule. It can be repealed at any time, uh, the federal refer can, and in the other states. So let me close out this session by quoting a couple of scriptures for you. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. I think that's most of the time read as a negative. You know, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. I think we ought to be reading that scripture from a positive. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. There is a strong history in this country of protecting religious freedom of upholding God, of being a Christian nation even. And we need to not abandon that, not right now, for the sake of whatever other, whatever other individual selfish desire we have, economic-wise or you know, free education or whatever it is, do not abandon now a right that this country was built on and that people understood to be the first right of liberty in this country. Because most people still believe and value it. I don't know how it's gotten muffled out and how the media has been able to pull off what they have in basically making the religious people out to be the bad guys. But I say we hold on to the second part of that and say, look, they understand the value of Christian principles in this country. And they, they, if, if they'll hold on to his sayings, then they'll hold on to our 
They'll, they'll, they'll let us say what we need to say and do what we need to do. But only if we don't cross those lines and, and act inconsistent with Scripture in the way we carry it out and coarse jokes and harassing and that sort of thing. There's one other one, 1 Peter 4.16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. That's the positive. And I want you to remember the negative, the context of that Scripture. If you suffer as a wrongdoer, then you deserved it. And so I start where I, fin- I end where I fin- started, is I want to uphold religious rights in this country, but not so that you can abuse them, not so that our members can abuse them. We have got to learn not to be bigoted in our language, in our crude jokes, in order to be able to be the ambassadors of Christ and be able to uphold our religious freedom, not just to think, not just to teach in a Bible class, but to actually act consistent with those beliefs. But only if those actions are truly holy. If we start crossing those lines, society will not uphold us. If we suffer as a Christian, though, we don't have to be ashamed. Now, I'm going to stop there. We'll, 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 uh, next, next session, we're going to go through a little quiz, and um, you're going to score yourself just on some general legal issues. Uh, this will be this afternoon. But one of those is going to be regarding the facility use policy. And if you don't have one, we're going to be handing out uh, a model policy and a ap- model application for using the facilities and a model agreement to get everybody signed if you're going to use the facilities. Any questions before we close out in prayer? You pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we're mindful of you. We're mindful of the many blessings you give us. We pray that as Christians, uh, we will be um, consistent in our walk and continue to walk in the light as you are in the light so that we can show the world your light. Forgive us of our sins, our shortcomings, our failures, and uh, help us uh, imitate your Son so that uh, we might not only be an influence for good, but might be able to continue to freely worship you and uh, proclaim your gospel in this country. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.